Welcome to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. I'm Michael Kingswood and I write science fiction and fantasy. I used to be in the Navy, spent 20 years doing submarine operations, among other cool things. Learned to fly planes, learned to scuba dive, had a bunch of kids, saw the world, and I started writing fiction. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing my stories with you in the hope that you'll have fun, and also that you'll like my stuff and come back for more and maybe help brother out with buying a book or two. So uh, sit back, relax, I'm going to tell you a story. Hey friends, it's Michael Kingswood, and coming at you again with story time. Back from my trip to Florida, but even though I'm uh, back home in San Diego, I'm going to keep this short because I've been traveling, and it's now Sunday evening, <laughs> and i got to get this out tomorrow on Monday. So... We'll just uh, go ahead and say, hey, continuing on with uh, Glimmer Vale. This week is chapters 9 and 10. Holy smokes, we're almost a third of the way through already. Man, where does the time go? Well, that's right. It takes by one second at a time. Um, yeah, anyway, um, not a whole lot to report from the uh, Kingswood abode around here. Had a good trip. Uh, saw family, got some work done. Uh, went to the beach. Man, it's good to be able to swim at the beach. If you haven't been to California, you know, you can go to the beach, but you can't swim there because it's straight down from Alaska, so it's always freaking freezing. So unless you have a wetsuit or you want to die of hypothermia, you're not swimming unless it's, you know, late August, late September, and then you're lucky if it maybe gets to 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Maybe. Maybe. Whereas Florida, it's, hey, it's balmy, it's nice, hey, yeah, good, yeah, Gulf Stream's carrying stuff, water up from the Caribbean, it's all kinds of good to swim in, and the kids had fun, I had fun, went and saw some other stuff, went out to the range with dad and my boy, and uh, shot the, my dad's old rifle that I, frankly, I didn't even know he had, his kick-ass 22 Remington that he's had for a long time, and my boy loved it. Anyway, um, yeah, so... That's all I have to say about that. So anyway, uh, moving on to uh, the next few chapters of Gloomer Vale. Hope you've liked it so far. And uh, here we go. Chapter 9. Chapter 9. Working Arrangements. Mayor Brimley bubbled over with enthusiasm when Julian and Radric announced their acceptance of the offer. He shook both their hands repeatedly, fairly bouncing up and down each time he did. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. The people of Lydleton will honor your names always. He sure was laying it on a bit thick, considering they hadn't really done anything yet. Julian found it understandable to an extent. The town had been living in fear for weeks. But still, he couldn't help but wonder how true the mayor's gratitude really was. Constable Mallory was more reserved, merely nodding with a small smile. Again, appropriate. It was the mayor's place to be boisterous, and from what Julian had seen, they all tended to enjoy it. The constable had a serious job, though, and that tended to attract more serious, business-minded men to it. Finally, Mayor Brimley took a step back. You'll report to Lucian on this, but I'll be keeping tabs on how things are going. For now, I'll leave you to get better acquainted. He beamed a smile at them and added, Good luck to us all. Then he turned and strolled out of the inn. Well, he's plenty enthusiastic, Radric quipped. Mayor Brimley cares very deeply for the people of this town. Constable Mallory said. Just then, the waitress came out of the kitchen, carrying a tray with two plates, a pitcher, and two cups on it. She approached the table, but paused when she saw the constable standing next to them. 
She looked between Julian, Radric, and Mallory with a questioning expression on her face. The constable noted her presence and gestured for her to get about her work, saying, I'll not interrupt your breakfast any longer. Come by my office after you've dined and we'll discuss the situation in more detail. Breakfast consisted of chopped up fried potatoes, a hunk of bread smeared with butter, and fish meat baked in a sweet batter, along with spiced cider. Julian had noticed in their short time in the town that the locals seemed to put fish into just about everything. That was understandable, he supposed, considering the proximity of the lake and its obvious contribution to the local economy. Still, fish for breakfast struck him as odd. It was tasty, though. He couldn't complain about that. I hope you know what you're doing, Julian said as he and Radric tromped upstairs to retrieve their equipment. His thigh began to sting again, causing him to question his decision. Radric responded with a soft snort and a shrug of his shoulders. <laughs> you know as much as I do. Julian rolled his eyes. Yeah, this was going to end up being a bad idea. A few minutes later, after they donned their mail and strapped on their weapons, the two friends headed out. In mid-morning, Lyttelton was markedly different than it had been the previous evening. More people were out and about, conducting the errands of the day. Looking to the right as they exited the inn, the road became more congested quickly as it descended to the lake shore and the docks. A trio of boats were tied up along the lone pier in sight. A line of men stood around next to each boat on the dock, helping offload large bundled items in a daisy train leading off of the pier, and out of sight to the right. The scene struck Julian as a bit odd. A little early to be offloading, isn't it? Radric followed Julian's gaze toward the dock. A confused expression on his face, he shrugged his shoulders before replying, I would think so. I wonder what's going on. There was no particular hurry to get to the constable's office, so the two men set off toward the docks. The road descended quickly, and before long they reached the head of the pier. From there, they could see five more piers stretching out into the lake, each with a couple of boats tied up and similar lines of men hauling bundles. The lines of workers converged on a large wagon that waited at the head of the second pier, one street over from where Radric and Julian stood. As they watched, the wagon reached its capacity, and a balding man with a bit of a paunch waved off the lines of men with their burdens. Then he hopped into the front of the wagon and shook the reins. His team of two horses began moving, and the wagon departed up the street. Moments later, a second, identical wagon appeared from the same street and came to a halt before the pier, and the lines of men commenced to fill it. That was curious. Julian and Radric hurried past the newly arrived wagon and up the next street. A block up the road, the first wagon was parked next to the side entrance of a nondescript building that could only be a warehouse. Additional workers were offloading the wagon and bringing its contents within. The two friends walked past the wagon to the corner of the warehouse, where another door that looked to be the main entrance was situated at the head of three short stairs. Julian looked at Radric questioningly and received a shrug in response, so he led the way to the main entrance and then inside. Within, the warehouse was larger than it appeared from the outside. The ground level consisted mostly of a single large room with a vaulted ceiling. A number of large bins stood at intervals around the room. The workers came in through the side and walked to specific bins. There, they unwrapped their packages and dumped the contents, fish, of course, into the bins. As Radric and Julian watched, one of the bins became filled to capacity, and a man standing near it pulled on a rope. A bell rang overhead, and, a moment later, another pair of workers entered the room, pushing a bin before them. It was only then that Julian noticed that each bin was wheeled. The two new men replaced the full bin with their empty one and pushed it towards the rear of the warehouse, where a wide pair of swinging doors separated this room from another. Hey, what are you doing in here? The voice, gruff and businesslike, drew Julian's eye to a tall, stocky man who was approaching from the left. The man was in his early middle years and wore his graying black hair cut short. He wore his work boots and coveralls like the other men, but his shirt was red while theirs were blue. 
Julian surmised he was the foreman. We were just curious about your setup here, Julian said, putting on a friendly smile. Seems a bit early to be offloading the boats. The day's not even a third done. The foreman scowled. It's almost done for this shift. Fish don't jump except at twilight, so the boats go out before sunrise and at sunset to catch them. He looked them up and down, his eyes lingering on the sword at Julian's hip and Raedric's saber. Don't see what that matters to you. You don't have the look of men looking for a job. We're not. Then get out. This is a business, not a tourist attraction. He pointed with authority toward the door they had entered through. There wasn't any point in objecting, so they left. It took about ten minutes to walk to Constable Mallory's office from the fish warehouse. By the end of the walk, Julian's thigh was throbbing again. Each step caused him to grit his teeth. This was no way for a big hero to start off his job as savior. Constable Mallory was seated behind the desk to the right as they walked in the door, perusing a small collection of official-looking papers. He looked up as they entered and nodded in greeting. I was just going over the reports of all the raids to date. I thought maybe you would like to review them as well. Might be there's something we missed. That made sense, Julian supposed. He moved over to the desk to pick up one of the reports, but Raedric's words brought him up short. Where is the prisoner? Julian turned to see his friend looking into the cell block. His eyes widened when he noticed what Raedric was talking about. All the cell doors were open. Julian turned back to the constable, a simmering anger beginning to well up within him. What had these people done? Then Constable Mallory spoke, dousing Julian's anger as quickly as it flared up. Fendig has him down at the courthouse for his preliminary hearing with the judge. They should be back in an hour or so. I didn't realize you have the resources for a full inquiry and trial here, as remote as you are. Raedric replied as Julian picked up the stack of reports. Due process is still due process, wherever you are, Constable Mallory said, his lips turning downward into a slight frown. I didn't mean to imply, Raedric began, but Constable Mallory cut him off. You did more than just imply it, you flat out stated that. The argument faded into the background as Julian picked up the reports and began reading. The first was the deposition from a month and a half ago by a fellow named Modrin Galanti of Hollis over by the Great Sea. He owned a trading company and had been traversing Holbart's Pass when he was accosted by half a dozen men who were equipped similarly to the brigands Julian and Raedric encountered the previous day. Galanti reported that his guards had repelled the attack, but one of his carriages had been burned to the ground, along with all of its wares and two of his men killed. Total loss, 200 marks, including contractual reparations he now owed to the families of his lost men. Julian winced. That much money would keep 20 families eating for a year in many areas of the kingdom. That was bad. The next report was worse. Julian knew what to expect from what Mallory had told them back at the inn, but the deposition went into more details. Lev Harpwell was the man who discovered the burned-out farmstead during a run to deliver horseshoes from Gil Aberdeen, one of the two blacksmiths in town. What he described. It made the burned-out farm Julian and Raedric came across seem civilized by comparison. What was wrong with these people? The reports continued, almost a full dozen of them spanning the time between the first caravan attack and the attack above the falls yesterday. Julian replaced the last report before his and Raedric's back down on Constable Mallory's desk and suppressed a slight shiver. This was not going to be easy. He looked over at Raedric, who was reading an earlier report, and shook his head. All of a sudden, I've got a bad feeling about this. Raedric looked up, one eyebrow moving upward as he responded. You had a good feeling before? You know what I mean. The lady who gave this last report said there were dozens of attackers. We'll need a bloody army to fight them off. Constable Mallory nodded. I had come to a similar conclusion. I asked the fishing foreman to lend me some of their boys like they do in the summer, but they refused. 
With a sigh, he settled back into his chair. I'm hoping they'll come around if you can add a few smaller victories to what you did yesterday and get these cells filled. Let me guess, you and Fendig won't be coming with us for these victories. He shook his head. We will help as we can, but you must understand my primary duty is to maintain law and order within the town limits. Great. Radric picked up the final report and scanned it quickly. Did the wounded guard from this last attack pull through? Constable Mallory shook his head. Alas, no. He passed not long after we got him to town. The guildsmen from the healer's circle tried their best, but they say he lost too much blood. That's too bad. What about the woman? Is she still in town? Oh, yes, replied the constable, and complaining every minute about it. She's holed up over at the Orlock. Word is, she tried to hire every coachman in town to drive her down to Callus, but none of them would take the job. Julian felt his interest piqued. How come? Mallory shrugged. Too dangerous. A sudden grin appeared on his face, and he chuckled, adding, Of course, I can think of two men offhand who said they were willing, except for her attitude. Julian had a feeling he knew who the constable was talking about. Good-looking? Again, Mallory shrugged. They don't seem to have problems with the ladies. Not the drivers, the woman! The constable blinked and flushed slightly. Clearing his throat, he nodded. Yes, quite striking, in fact. Julian grinned. This was turning out to be his lucky day. Giving Radric a little punch in the shoulder, he said, I think I know where we can get some help. Chapter 10. Majory. Julian knocked on the door, making a firm staccato series of thumps against the wood. A muffled voice from within indicated the occupant would be with him in a minute, so he stepped back and waited. Beside him, Radric smirked slightly, but said nothing. A short while later, the door swung open, revealing the woman Julian had met the night before in the tap room. She was, if possible, even more lovely than he recalled, garbed in a dark green dress that was just as well-crafted as her clothing from last night. Recognition flashed across her face as she saw him, and she frowned. You again. I thought I made myself clear last night. I don't want to be bothered by the likes of you. Julian fought down a surge of irritation. We're here on business, Mistress Clemens. Her frown deepened as he spoke. How do you know my name? Radric interjected. I'm Radric Bolletier, Mistress Clemens. This is... Jules Hiddenstrap. We've met. Julian ground his teeth in irritation. Julian Hinderbrook. Oh, I'm sorry. She didn't sound like it. And from the sweetly innocent expression she wore, she sure didn't look it either. Silence hung awkwardly between the three of them for a moment. Finally, Radric cleared his throat and got back to it. We're working with Constable Mallory, Mistress Clemens. He told us about your encounter while you were with the caravan that was attacked, and we wanted to ask you a few questions about it. Lawmen, huh? She replied, you don't look the type. That's because we're not. She smirked. Hired swords, then. These yokels must really be getting desperate. With a sigh, she gestured for them to come into her room. Fine. Let's get this over with. Room was inaccurate. She had a suite. A sitting room larger than the room Julian and Radric shared lay beyond the entrance. A couch and two padded chairs sat in a loose circle around a low table in the far end of the room, near a crackling fireplace. Two other doors led out, one on either side of the room. A taller table stood near the door on the right with a decanter filled with dark red wine and several glasses resting on top. Next to the table stood a small shelf that was filled with books. 
Julian recognized several titles from one afternoon of liberty that he spent within a bookstore in Callis. He normally didn't have the money to indulge in many books, and a man in his position couldn't afford to get overly encumbered. But he had always enjoyed reading a good story, so he found himself envying the collection. Can I offer you anything? She asked. Julian shook his head. No, thank you, replied Raedric. Suit yourself. Taking a moment to fill a glass for herself, she moved over to the couch and sat down. Taking a sip of the wine, she smiled faintly and said, What is it you want to know? Mistress Clemens, Raedric began. Melanie. All right. Melanie. How much of the attack were you able to see? She looked at Raedric as though she thought he was daft. All of it, of course. At least, all of it until I stepped away. So, what did you- There were thirty-five of them, ten with bows. They started shooting and the wagon drivers tried to make a run for it. At first it looked like we were going to get away, but we turned a corner to find they had felled a tree across the road, so the horses could not carry us onward if they wanted to. Melanie shrugged her shoulders. You can imagine what happened after that. Thirty-five. That's a fairly precise number. Melanie gave Raedric a long-suffering look. I have a very good memory, she replied. I'm sure, Julian said. He didn't try to keep the irony of her statement out of his tone at all. So did you get a look at their leader? Melanie shook her head. They were split up into three groups, and each of them had a leader. I couldn't even hazard a guess which one of them, if any, had overall command. How did you escape? She shrugged. When I need to be, I'm very good at not being seen. I've heard you mages have some tricks that can help with that. Melanie made a soft tisking sound in response to Julian's statement. You are mistaken. I'm not a mage. The magisterium does not admit women as students. Julian snorted. After what you did last night, do you expect a simple carnival trick? Nothing more. Melanie's tone was casual, dismissive. But her expression had become guarded and wary. Like hell. I've seen that trick, and I know how it's done. You didn't touch your drink at all, and you didn't have time to suck down anything else. And the only fire nearby was the candle in the center of the table. So you can claim not to be a mage, and maybe you didn't go to the magisterium. But you learned a thing or two about magic somewhere. Melanie was silent for a time meeting Julian's gaze with a level stare of her own. Finally, she shrugged and looked away. I suppose it is hypothetically possible that a young lady might encounter a certified graduate of the Magisterium, that the two of them might fall in love, and that he might pass on what he'd learned to her despite the rules against it. But if such a thing were to happen, she would have to be very careful never to let her ability become common knowledge, because the Magisterium's wrath is legendary in its viciousness. She looked back at the two men an unspoken plea in her eyes. Julian and Raedric exchanged glances. Everyone has secrets, it seems, Julian thought. He wouldn't want his betrayed any more than she wanted hers. He gave Raedric a small nod, which the other man returned with a quick grin. Your secret is safe with us, Melanie, Raedric said. Who said it was my secret? She replied, but Julian could not mistake the gratitude in her eyes. One thing I don't understand, Raedric added. If such a hypothetical lady existed and she was in a situation where her traveling companions were attacked like you were, why wouldn't she try to help? Surely her companions would keep her secret in exchange for their lives. Julian nodded. Yeah, we saw some mages assigned to our division wreak some serious havoc in battle. Lightning from the sky, fireballs. It was impressive. Melanie sniffed. Well, speaking hypothetically, the sorts of things you're talking about require more than just waving your hands around. There are incantations to make and very specific gestures and stances that must be performed in time with the incantations. 
Also, there are material items that are used up in the spell. If the lady in question found herself in a situation similar to mine, she would have two problems. First, the only spells that could have conceivably helped take several minutes to cast, and would have left her exposed to harm for the entire time. More importantly, though, the material components involved. Well, some of them are worth more than that entire caravan and all its contents. She would have been foolish to expend them under those circumstances. Julian supposed he could understand Melanie's point, but at the same time, to figure the cost of her spell components against the lives of her companions struck him as particularly cold-blooded. But then he thought about several decisions his officers had made on the battlefield, decisions that he had understood even if he had not always completely approved of. They all came down to math. Don't risk twenty men to rescue one who was probably dead. Things like that. Was her decision all that different from theirs? Radric spoke again. You've made it more than clear you don't want to be here. So, where were you going? Away. Away from what? Let's just say it was time to leave. That was suitably vague, and not that dissimilar to the thought process that got them started on their own journey. Julian looked over at Radric and saw from his expression that he was thinking the same thing. Radric continued, Well, as long as these thugs have the passes blocked, you're stuck here, you know. That's been distressingly clear for days, but thank you for confirming the obvious. You know we're working to drive the brigands off, Julian interjected. Melanie nodded. I assumed as much. If the group that attacked you numbered 35, there's probably at least 40 to 50 total. Pretty long odds for the two of us, but if there was someone in town who had knowledge of magic and could even the odds a bit, that might make all the difference. What would be in it for this person? Radric replied before Julian could. The satisfaction of helping people in need. And, he added as a smirk began to form on her lips, freedom. Once the brigands are gone, there's nothing stopping you from going wherever it is you're planning to go. Melanie pursed her lips in thought. Leaning back on her couch for a moment, she considered the two men. Julian felt as though he was being weighed and measured under her gaze. Finally, Melanie shrugged and nodded. I may be able to do something to help. What is your plan? Alright, so starting to come together a little bit on their, uh... Working arrangements. <laughs> no pun intended. From the chapter title. Uh, hey, yeah. Here's a shock. The girl from the bar is more than she seemed. Man, never would have figured that. Wow. I must be a genius to put that in. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, so hey, we've got a new member of the team. Probably get some more, more members of the team coming up here soon. Um, hopefully, considering that I told you this was. Inspired by Seven Samurai, I assume you kind of already figured that. And so, hey, off to uh, try to do some good. Um, yeah. So that's all we got for this one. Uh, hope you liked it. As I said before, if you do like it, go buy the book. Go my SSNStorytelling.com. As I say in my outro, I get the most money if you buy it from there. Of course, you can always get it from Amazon or Barnes Noble or Kobo, all the other places, and Audible and iTunes and all the other audiobook places. And, uh, yeah, it's okay. If you don't want to buy it, cool. Uh, send me a tip. But definitely like these uh, videos in the podcast, subscribe to the podcast and the videos, and tell everybody about it. Spread the word. Hey, this guy's selling these cool stories. And, uh, man, I really like the stories. Didn't like them enough to buy them, but I think you should listen to them too or something. Anyway, um, that's all I got. Hope you guys have a great week. I'll talk to you again next Monday. Until then, don't do anything I wouldn't do.
Thanks for listening to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. You can find me online at michaelkingswood.com. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. My web store is ssnstorytelling.com, where you can find all my books in your favorite formats. Purchasing through the web store nets me the most profit, but if you prefer, I'm also on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and all the other usual e-tailers. If you want to learn about new releases, sign up for my mail list through the contact form at my website. I guarantee not to spam you, only send an email when I have some news to share. Storytime with Michael Kingswood is copyright of Michael Kingswood. Intro and outro music, copyright Gene Paul Zogby, licensed through stockmusic.net. All rights reserved. <laughs>